Podo. You're listening to Law and Disorder, a weekly podcast which aims to get to the heart of the big legal issues of the day. Hello, I am Charlie Faulkner, and this is another edition of Law and Disorder. Who have I got today? Helena Kennedy. Nicholas Mostyn. We're going to talk today about assisted dying, and assisted dying could mean a whole range of things. It can mean taking your own life because you're terminally ill. It can mean taking your own life simply because you're suffering, or it can mean turning off the machines and not getting treatment. Helena, do you have a quick view about that? I have to tell you that my Catholic upbringing comes into play, and I and I do feel that the sacred nature of life means that we have to treat it with real care. Of course, as I get older and I come closer to people who are dying and who have are presented with the challenges that come with a very painful death, then I am revisiting some of the things that I feel very deeply. But I, I don't come easily to this. Nick? Well, as is known, I am a Parkinson's sufferer. As such, I've had to consider perhaps more acutely than others the question of mortality, which I have done. But there's also the moral aspects of that, which I've had to bear in mind very closely. It's a topic that everybody comes to with a mixture of law, a sense of morality, but also personal experience. I am a very, very enthusiastic campaigner for allowing people to be helped when they are terminally ill to take their own life. And I got into that, like everybody else who's involved in it, through personal experience, through, through seeing how people die in their last illness and seeing that if they want help to take their own lives, for example, to stop the next three or four weeks of their life, which is all that is left being absolute hell, then I think they should have that right. But maybe we should start this discussion by me saying what the current law is, then going on from there. Currently, in England and Wales, it's not an offence to kill yourself. And that was made lawful or not criminal by something called the Suicide Act in 1961. But the Suicide Act, 1961, made it an offence to assist anybody else to commit suicide. And the crime is complete if you take any steps to try to help somebody kill themselves. So if you tried to help your loved one kill themselves because they were terminally ill and were dying to be put out of the pain and misery that they're in, that's a crime under the Suicide Act, and it attracts a sentence of up to 14 years. It's a crime where a prosecution can only be brought with the permission of the Director of Public Prosecutions. The law's the same, effectively, in Northern Ireland. There's nothing like the Suicide Act in Scotland, but in Scotland they've got something called culpable homicide, and if you assist somebody to commit suicide in Scotland, you may well be guilty of the crime of what culpable homicide. What does assist homicide. mean? If you say you want to go to a Dignitas clinic in Switzerland, if I buy the tickets in Britain, help you onto the train because you're ill, go with you through England into Switzerland, giving you emotional support throughout that period, that is assisting a suicide, a crime under Section 2. But I thought that this came to a head at a point when Keir Starmer actually was the Director of Public Prosecutions, and I thought he created a new directive for prosecutors that really were, I mean, obviously you have to investigate family members if there's a possibility that they're assisting in this for, for their own benefits and so on. But he really did sort of create guidance which suggested if someone were really doing this at the behest of their 
partner or a close relative. And it was clear that it was merely uh, making sure that nothing happened to them as they travelled, that they shouldn't be prosecuted. And that, he gave that direction. That's he? absolutely right. And it came about because of two cases in the European Court of Human Rights, where the first one was a lady called Diane Pretty, who had motor neurone disease. And she said not being able to take her own life was a breach of her Article 8 rights, which mm-hmm. is a right to privacy. If I want to kill myself, then somebody helping me shouldn't be a crime. What the European Court said, yes, Article 8 does apply, but the Suicide Act in England is a proportionate response because you don't want people to be helping people to commit suicide for bad reasons. There was then another case called Debbie Purdy in 2009, again before the European Court of Human Rights, where Debbie Purdy, who suffered from multiple sclerosis, said... Because the DPP's got this discretion and you don't know when he's going to prosecute and when he's not going to prosecute, order the DPP to give guidelines as to when he will prosecute and when he won't so that I will know... That my husband or my partner is likely to prosecute. I think perhaps we should make it clear that under the Suicide Act, the DPP has to consent to any prosecution. That's absolutely right. He basically decides if people are guilty or not guilty, doesn't he? Because if he decides to prosecute, the the problem is not going to be much of a defence, is there? Well, well, it's very interesting because I actually, around this table, I'm probably the only one who's ever done a case of this sort. And it was a case where an elderly man had spoken about wanting to take his own life for particular reasons in in his case. His children didn't hear from him and his daughter went round with her husband and the neighbour had a key to get in. They went in and he was on the floor and they couldn't decide whether he was alive or dead and they decided to just let it be. And they walked back out of the house and pulled the door too. And in the morning went back round again and he was sure his eggs was dead. And then they informed, you know, they called an ambulance and so forth. But they they basically had been ambivalent and they all talked and said, do you think he is dead? And they, they couldn't feel a pulse and they sp- there was a bit of spittle on his mouth and they couldn't decide whether it wavered or not. All three of them ended up being prosecuted. Yeah. And I acted for them. It was the omission. It was basically, they were saying, the omission of acting when, mm-hmm. when there may be life in someone. But it was very interesting because the judge, I tried to get the judge to throw it out halfway through on the basis that, you know, there just wasn't enough evidence. The judge wanted the jury to be the people who decided this. And it went to the jury and the jury within 40 minutes came back and acquitted. Yeah. And it's just that the general public were clearly shifting and moving to a position where they felt if someone is really by their own hand killing themselves and so on, isn't this ridiculous that you end up prosecuting people who who are respecting his intentions? That is such a, a story that reflects the law is really out of whack. Yes. with the way the public would view this. Yes. But should I just go on a little bit? Helen is right to say there were guidelines published. The, the effect of the guidelines are if the person who you help to take their own life has got a firm view that they want to die, they want the suffering to end, and you provide comparatively minor and maybe reluctant help, and you're motivated by compassion, and you're not a healthcare professional, then the guidelines say the DPP won't authorise prosecution. If, on the other hand, the person who dies is, for example, a minor, or you're a healthcare professional, or you're motivated by something other than compassion, then the DPP will prosecute. Now, what Nick said a few moments ago is absolutely right. If I assist somebody to commit suicide, then the effect of the Suicide Act is I've got no defence, however my motivation was. Even if I've done it for entirely compassionate reasons, the crime is complete when I assist you in trying to take your own life. So 
if the DPP decides to prosecute, subject to the jury just refusing to convict, which they often will, nevertheless, you are in effect guilty of the crime. So you have a situation in this country where a well-meaning official, because the DPP is generally well-meaning, has the decision as to whether you're guilty or innocent, in effect. And that's a very odd situation. Well, that's a very odd situation. And then you have the fact that... It's only active assistance which is criminal, not passive assistance. Yeah. So if somebody's in hospital, if I'm in hospital, say, and I'm extremely unwell, I've fed through the peg, I've, been, I've got hydration, and I'm fed up, and I say, I want you to turn all the nutrition and hydration off, Yeah. a doctor can do that without being guilty of assistance under the Suicide Act. Yeah, yeah. That's correct, isn't it? That is correct, yes. So it's only active assistance that is to be prosecuted by the DPP that is criminal. But, <laughs> but, but it's a, the, the terrible thing is I had a very good friend who was a very well-known journalist, and she had motor neuron disease. She had read up on it and she knew everything about it and she was becoming more and more fragile. And although none of us knew for sure, she um, had arranged at one stage to have to go into a hospice. Really, she was saying to give her husband some respite. And uh, she went into the hospice and she died. Yeah. We all basically thought that what she had done was that she'd accumulated some of her medicine or something and that she had taken her own life in a place where there would be, you know, nurses and so on, but not with her. But she took her own life. And the sadness of it was that the man who loved her, who'd spent, you know, who was her husband, wasn't there to be sitting at her bedside. Mm. But the courage of the woman in doing it was just extraordinary. But I've often thought about being on your own and not having yeah, that person holding your hand. The law is so cruel in that respect now because people who think about their relatives and think, for example, that if you help me go to Dignitas and then I come back, the person who's helped the person who's died in Dignitas to come back, they're then investigated. And everybody says the police are sympathetic generally in these investigations, but they take months and months and months. And immediately after you've lost your loved one, you've got the cloud of a prosecution. It's stress and stress. And it's terrible. But in October 23, after a case called Mavis and Dennis Eccleston, I don't know if you know, but Mavis and Dennis Eccleston were a couple. They'd been married for 60 years. Dennis got terminal cancer and was having an absolutely hellish time. They entered into a suicide pact. Mavis may have given pills to Dennis and Dennis may have given pills to Mavis. And Dennis died and Mavis didn't. And Mavis was then charged with murder. Oh, God. (laughs) And the jury did not convict. No, they were did not convict. Max Hill, who was then the DPP, then extended the guidelines to say the DPP's discretion would apply not just to assisted suicide cases, where I assist somebody to take their own life, but would also cover mercy killings and suicide packs when you like compare, that. When you compare that story of that poor couple and you think about the barbarism of our system, compare it to Holland with the recent former prime minister and his wife. Yeah. Are you aware of that? Yes, was, they were both in their 90s they and were. they killed themselves quite recently. Yes. But the, the wife, in fact, of one of our colleagues in the House of Lords told me that her parents did this. They, they killed themselves together. Um, yeah. And they didn't know. And then um, they were found dead in their apartment 
she said that it was very hard on the family, on the children. Yeah. Because the, nothing had prepared them for it. Yeah. And so on. She would like to see reform, partly because it would have meant that their, the secretiveness around what her parents did might not have been part of the way in which the decision was made. But they didn't tell any of their children because they didn't want it to be that there was some sort of collusion in it and any yeah. question of members of the family being investigated. But there, of course, there is the risk always. I remember Joel Joffe was one of the first mm. lords to actually try to move amendments and things in the lords. He tried to persuade me to, to come on side in relation to an amendment he put to a bill that was on general health care. And I argued against doing that because I felt that something as morally important as this had to be given a bill of its own and be debated by everybody and, and the public be part of a great debate. And I think that is happening just now. And therefore, I think that there should be standalone legislation on something as ethically challenging as this mm. and it needs much more complicated rather than an amendment to a general bill i couldn't agree more there needs to be, and above all there needs to be acceptance in the house of commons which there isn't at the moment but there may be after the election of a need for a change keir starmer you referred to he was the dpp who produced mm. the guidelines he has said there are two big problems with the guidelines first of all because they effectively ban a professional from giving any help it means that what you are allowing in the country now not to be a crime is amateur help to the person you love. And that's very, very unsatisfactory. Yes. If you accept the proposition that where there are safeguards, people should be entitled to help somebody else take their own life, then the idea that it's got to be done by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing is not a good conclusion. And then the second thing he says is the only, the only way that this law operates is an after-the-event investigation yes. surely it would be better if before the person is assisted to kill themselves that safeguards are gone through so that it's done before exactly. rather than after because yeah. if you investigate well, and you discover that the person who has taken their own life was in fact vulnerable all you can do is then prosecute you haven't provided any protection yes, whatsoever yeah, that's, well, that's we'll right get, yeah but before we talk about law reform can i just ask you to address what i find to be a moral paradox the law allows me under something called the Mental Capacity Act, to sign what is called an advanced decision, which says that if I were to, for example, fall into a coma or vegetative state, then artificial nutrition and hydration should be withdrawn without any delay so that I should die as soon as possible. The law well, you're allowed, allowed at the, the moment the to law, do that. The, the law presently allows that to happen, and it goes on in, under the Mental Capacity Act to say that any person, like a doctor, who turns off, who withdraws or withholds the nutrition and hydration, or it could be antibiotics or whatever, is not liable in any way. What is the moral difference between me asking a doctor to turn off my hydration and nutrition and me asking a doctor to give me a, a lethal cocktail? It's my choice. I do not think in this country you should be forced to have any treatment at all. If I don't want to be treated, if I don't want to be fed, then subject to mental health issues... I should be allowed to be that, in that, that position. Is, that is and what that, that is the law. That is the law. But the, the law currently is I cannot in any circumstances help somebody to take their own life. You do see a distinction between a doctor withdrawing or withholding treatment at the behest of the ill patient and a doctor giving a cocktail to kill that patient. Yes, I, on my reform, the person would have to take the, the pills themselves. Taking your own life when you are terminally ill, you should be free to make that choice because the situation arises in practice where somebody is terminally ill, they may only have a few weeks to live, may only have a few days to live, they've 
they're they're close to sort of withdrawing from any human contact should they be forced to okay. go through that because taking away nutrition or taking away food may not bring the end before it, 10 days it's the motor neuron example yeah, yes. the head mistress of the school i went to was married to somebody who got motor neuron disease and the end under motor neuron disease is not good. You can't eat. You can't do anything. Tony Jutt was one of the great, yeah. great, great, writer, great, great and, writer. And he had motor neuron disease. And the horror that you choke to death, death because, you know, you're losing all your muscular... He communicated by swallowing. blinking, didn't he? And I can, I can well understand. But, but just, what's more worrying, though, is that people who are ill may go through periods of depression about it. And so you, what you want to make sure is that they're not having an episode of sort of, of the of low mood and so on, and therefore making a decision at a time like that, rather than where there's a sustained, clear decision not made because you're subject to a period of the blues. Absolutely right. A lot of people initially think that and then come out of it and have a very positive experience. Yeah, because I, I had that experience with, with one of my girlfriends who died when she was comparatively young. You know, now I think anybody that's, you know, not 60 is very young. <laughs> but, uh, and not she, 80 is very yeah, young. Yeah, but she died of lung cancer. And when she got the diagnosis, she said to me, you know, you're married to a doctor, I want you to speak to him and say to him, I want him to help me because if, if I'm in a terrible state at the end and all that. And then when it got near the end, I mean, I have to tell you that there was no way that she that yeah. she was wanting that. I actually was with her and held her when she died. And it was a passing. I mean, it's a bit like being there for someone who's giving birth. I mean, I do see these things as part of life cycle. I don't want people to die in hideous pain that can't be controlled. And I think there are some pains that can't be controlled. Um, but also the indignity of lots of the other things that go with, you know, the very end. But I also think that it is possible to have a good death. Palliative care can mm. relieve many of the symptoms. Palliative care doesn't reach everybody and some mm. illnesses have a huge indignity attached to them. Getting the best palliative care will make many people think they do want to go on living. But Everybody who's looked into this and everybody's got experience of it, there's a group of people who it's not about the pain. It is about the indignity, the desire not to be dependent on somebody. One of my closest friends in Edinburgh's mother, who's a very, very impressive person, she got diagnosed with a very severe form of cancer that would take some months to go. She was given the best palliative care in the world and she absolutely hated the idea of being dependent upon anybody all she had to look forward to was getting more and more and more dependent it was going to take a few months and she was absolutely determined that she wanted her life to be ended and nobody would do it and her death was hellish not because of the pain but because of the oh, lack of dignity and there even if you talk so to the palliative care doctors they will all acknowledge so there's a group of people reform, then. So what would be your model? Because there, model are many, would... there are many countries which now allow assisted dying. And what I mean, would be your model and what would be... New the... South Wales, please. There's Canada. There's, of course, the famous American one. Of, where is it? Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. They think that's the gold standard. Is that is it? Well, it works really well in Oregon. It was passed as a result of a referendum in Oregon. It's a law applied only to terminally ill people. It allows doctors to prescribe a life-ending cocktail of barbiturates. It's used quite a lot in the sense that a lot of people get the cocktail and then a significant number who don't use it. The, prim my, my, the primary criterion, though. Terminally ill only, got six months or less to live as a result of a diagnosis, 
two doctors confirm that you've got capacity to reach. This is what group. Oregon has. No, this is my proposal. This is your proposal. Is that and the then same a high court judge has got to agree to it. No, I'll come, I'm coming to that, especially the last one. Yeah. And I don't understand that at all, but I shall come back to that. Why have you chosen to follow the idea of terminal illness as opposed to intolerable suffering? Because intolerable suffering is very subjective. I'm very against the idea of the state authorising people to help other people kill themselves, except in circumstances where they're dying anyway. I think it is wrong that the state should help people who've got, as it were, no significant shortening of life to take their own life. And I think if you we, look at countries where that is it, the position... I mean, don't you think that intolerable suffering could cover a whole range of, if you like, mental periods in a person's life, which they can but, I mean, come I, through? I agree with Helena. In the low countries, but, they've got these laws yeah, on, where no. if you're people in their 20s who say they're intolerably depressed have exercised this right, and that is completely wrong in my view. And they no doubt would be able to satisfy, quote, an intolerable suffering threshold. I'm completely against that. I mean, it seems to me to be a feature of autonomy that you should be entitled, if you are suffering intolerably, and that's a subjective decision, to um, bring your life to an end. I mean, we do make that decision for the creatures that we adore who are in our care, don't we? We deal with our beloved animals in exactly that way when we judge them to be suffering intolerably. Well, those animals don't have autonomy, do they? They don't. They have your, your view about it all. They have, and they you're do. a very reliable High Court judge, but, <laughs> but yeah. is everybody so the same? I, I, I personally would go with the Dutch and the Belgians. Do the Belgians do it? I think. Yes, they do. And the yeah. Belgians, and have a criterion of intolerable And the Canadians suffering. have moved in that direction. And the Canadians have... Yeah. Perhaps you could... I think the Canadian Supreme Court has said that that should be the criterion, but Parliament is being a bit reluctant to enact that. The way the Canadians got into this was because of a Supreme Court decision that said the law should be changed. Parliament then passed an act changing the law, and the Canadian courts are now saying it should extend beyond terminal illness. I so agree with what Helena said earlier on in the conversation. This is something that's got to be decided by the legislature. I think you would find that our legislature would be very, very reluctant to go beyond terminal illness. And the history of that has been in countries which start with terminal illness, they stick with terminal illness. Those countries that have this concept of intolerable suffering or start from you're entitled to be helped to end your suffering, those are the countries, like the low countries, like Canada, that end up in a situation where the circumstances get so vague. We always talk about dignitas. What is the Swiss criteria? The Swiss criteria is that you've got a firm and settled intention that you want to take your own life. Well, most want that, don't they? A firm and settled yes. intention. Yeah, exactly. So and you've got to have the capacity to do it. Yes. There does not need to be... So it's just the supremacy of autonomy. Exactly. It's the supremacy, exactly. What do you think about that? I'm a great autonomist. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a very strong believer that if I am judged to have mental capacity, judged to have, to use the old language of sound mind... Mm-hmm and I believe that I'm suffering intolerably, subjectively, that I should be entitled to take my own life and that somebody who helps me do it should not be liable for anything. Well, but but, many people take their own lives, sadly, increasingly young. I mean, men, young men do it more often than anybody else. And I'm sure that it's because of their sense of the intolerable quality of their life that they don't feel their life has enough meaning. I feel that is really a dangerous area to start. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I'm a great believer in the supremacy of autonomy. I will. I would probably go eventually be persuaded that terminal illness should be the criterion 
rather than intolerable suffering. But the idea that then, having made that decision of sound mind, that, that I have to get persuade a High Court judge is just outrageous, in my opinion. I mean, that's basically treating me as if I'm not a sound mind. The purpose of the safeguards is to ensure that people are not being over-persuaded by relatives with bad motives to persuade you to take your own life. I mean, we know, we're now admitting it in the area of um, domestic abuse, the idea of coercion, the ways in which coercive conduct can be so subtle but sufficiently continuous can have a huge effect on the, on the mental capacities of someone if they keep being told just how ill they are and how terrible your life is. And a really moving person, person's into a state of mind where they think there is no um, hope. But can I just ask this question about this particular safeguard? First of all, I'm not aware that any other country requires judicial approval for the step that you're going to take. And I don't quite know where it's come from. Was it Lord Panic's idea? came from the House of Lords. But yeah. I mean, is it envisaged that this would be more than just box work by the judge? I mean, will there be an actual hearing? Will there be an advocate to the court or somebody appointed who will argue? Will there be an actual oral adversarial hearing? It would be or is it just going to be done by the judge on the papers when he comes in in the morning? It would it's be going up to be a rubber stamping judge. Well, it, was, it would be up to the judge. The judge should read the papers. The judge should decide what is required. If he's got any or she's got any doubts about the position, then he or she can call for a hearing. It may well be that in most cases, if looking at the papers, it's obvious that this person has got the capacity and the doctors are perfectly happy with that, there will be no need to do anything other than say, I approve this. But if they've got doubts, they can have a hearing. It'd be up to them. The key thing is to make sure that there are proper safeguards, that it cannot just be done behind closed doors with no real protection for somebody who might be vulnerable. I, hold on, I want to speak on behalf of the judges here. We have one here. No, no, <laughs> yes, I know, I know, but I want to yeah. just say that I, I'm kind of inclining to, in that view too. I remember that they, for example, Israel introduced this thing which was that judges could sanction a bit of torture. Mm -hmm. um, if they believed that uh, some Palestinian militant was brought in, they could torture him if they thought that he knew where a whole lot of armaments mm. or explosive material or something might be hidden. And what the Supreme Court there and a great judge, Judge Barak, decided was that he and the court decided that it shouldn't be that judges are gone to for this order because how could a judge know? The police would come and say, we've got a sense about this guy and, he, and we think he's senior enough to know where the explosives are hidden or where there might be bombs or where they're going to be placing a bomb tomorrow. Therefore, we want to extract from him that information. And I mean, judge, that seems judge, rather different to me. I, don't, I think it's a similar thing. How do you know the quality of what you're being told um, when you're only hearing it from one side? I think it's problematic. Yes, well, that was the question I was going to ask. I mean, is there going to have to be some kind of evidence from an independent guardian or something, you know, to satisfy the judge that there is no coercion going on. Again, it, it would depend upon the circumstances. But what I would envisage would be there's a statement from the person yes. and a statement from the two doctors. You right. need two doctors. And you're saying, Nicholas Mostyn is of Simon. He's plainly got capacity. He's been of this view for a very considerable time. His wife and his children are very, very supportive of this. His prospects are as follows for the next two to three weeks. He is absolutely clear this is what he wants to do. Speaking as a doctor, this is what is likely to happen to him over the next three weeks. And suppose this you, is a completely rational decision. Yeah, but you decision. hold on, hold on. In amongst all of that, yeah. you may not have the information 
that um, this um, elderly woman who's decided she wants to go this way has been walking her dog in the park and has been befriended by a younger man who uh, has actually sort of been seeing her daily and uh, whom she's changed her will to benefit from her death and who's been slightly encouraging her that a much nicer way to go would be that he might you yes, know, sit well, with her and hold her yeah, hand while is, she goes. There is that possibility. Uh, so, I well, agree. But where is that evidence going to come from? Well, if it is a covert sort of pressure what like a, that, then, then you may well not be able to. But the question is, would you want to exclude this possibility for everybody because you're able to identify circumstances, which you are, which might not be caught by the safeguards? In my view, definitely not. But what is the overriding test or criterion that the judge is applying? Is it best interests or is it does he has to satisfy himself that a free consent is being given or, or what? The test is, as long as there is a diagnosis of six months or less to live, is this the firm and settled view of the person... Who is of sound mind. Who is of sound mind, exactly. So it's, 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 it's autonomy. This is what I want to do, and I'm absolutely clear I want to do it. OK, so the doctors having said that it is, it's a, it's a further independent confirmation. If there's anything, it's the best possible way of providing protection. Going, I, I want to know, are you going to give conscientious objection to, first of all, the doctors, because so, there'll be some doctors who'll say, I don't want to be involved in this, it's contrary to my religious beliefs or my or my moral position on all of this. I mean, there are some doctors who are not religious at all, but who just feel that they're there to save lives and they don't want to be involved in this. What about the judge? Can a judge say, I don't want to be involved in this because I too have moral objections? But that, to... that, that can be done behind the scenes without any difficulty. Is that all as to your past work? Yes. Yeah. As to your first, yes. And we've made it clear in all the bills that we produced that there should be a conscientious objection for doctors. As to judges, my inclination is no. I mean, if you want to be a judge, you've got to you've got, you've to, got judge. to do them all. But you've I got mean, to do them all. You've got to do them all. But the, the president will allocate these cases to yeah. Will there be institutions, you know, um, um, that can say we have a as an institution, as a hospital that's run by nuns or something? We want a conscience let out from this ourselves? Well, the way the bill's been drafted is if you're a doctor and you, you don't want to get involved in this, you don't need to get involved in this. If you are a private institution, then presumably you can say we're not having anybody who wants an assisted death. So uh, if I... you're a National Health Service organisation, you okay. probably can't. So can I ask another thing about this? Why do you say that it would only be a private member's bill that would bring it into... It wouldn't force? necessarily only be... I didn't say why, it would why, be... A... If Labour won the election, why would it not be government business? It could be. What we think, what I think is the best way to deal with this is that all the political parties should propose that there should be a debate after which there should be a vote in the Commons as to whether or not they agree in principle. If they agree in principle to assisted dying, then the government should make time for the bill to go through. It would almost certainly have to be promoted by a backbencher. But the key issue that generally stops private members' bills getting through is there's not enough time. And if there are people who've got strong objections to a private member's bill, they can, by various procedural devices, stop it the, happening. The, the last time it was voted on in the House of Commons, it was overwhelmingly defeated. It was. In so do you think that there is a prospect of it getting through a work that's been done, a new House of Commons after a general election? Work that's been done on the House of Commons at the moment, which is, as it were, canvassing all the members of the House of Commons think that it's about 50-50 okay. at the moment. Right. My own feeling, having spoken to quite a lot of people who are going to become MPs who aren't MPs at the moment, is that there would probably be a quite significant majority in favour of it. The Commons has, by and large, not reflected the views of the public. There's been persistent polling I... over 20 years, which gives sort of 70% plus in favour. There are a number of things that I wanted to raise with you, which is that 
Our National Health Service is, is on its knees. Yeah. And in my view, it's been a, a serious business of a kind of removal of resource over a quite a long period of time yeah. um, where there are certain of our political class who basically decided that um, a National Health Service is not any longer viable. I don't agree with them, but that's the way it's gone. The impoverishment of the National Health Service means that people are hard-pressed, that doctors are run off their feet, that people are not in good places when it comes to mm-hmm. the timetable of work. Mm-hmm. In all of that, are we risking the care that would have to be taken with these kind of decisions? And could we not be, if you like, please bear with me, coarsening a kind of a moral commitment to care? And that's one of the things I'm concerned about is that I feel, and I watch this, I watch this in debates in, in Parliament, I feel that there's a growing me, 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 I want to have my choice and I'm, I'm going to decide when I die. And what, but what about people who are poor? What about people who are will need special assistance? Are you going to be really looking at, was the, the patient given the real kind of psychological support? And do we have enough people in our public health system to do that? Are we going to be looking to see whether, is this going to be taken up with people who've got private health insurance rather than what's going to happen with the people who are using the public service? What's the income of the people who are doing this? Is it the poor? How are the poor being handled in all of this? It's a fair Um, point, Charlie, isn't it? Part of the effect of this is that GPs in particular, but doctors and hospitals as well, as well, will become much more conscious of talking to patients rich and poor, about the end of their lives. But I'm very conscious of what Helena is saying. And this ability to have the ability to make these choices should be for everybody. everybody. And it will take time for doctors. And it will be the way the doctors react to this. And the doctors have previously been polls of the BMA looked like they were against it. They've now taken a neutral position. My experience, I did a commission on assisted dying. And doctors were quite like the public. There were some who were incredibly against it. There were some who were incredibly in favour of it, but the vast majority just wanted there to be clarity about what the law is. This is a system where if you look at the places in the world where it's taking place as a reform, they've been largely the rich countries of the world, right? I really am concerned about how this plays out for poor people, but I'm also worried about the way in which it it feeds into a society where there's a coarsening of our ethical standards and our and our compassion for each other and our caring. And just now, as there's going to be a crisis in, in the care of people with disabilities and the elderly. And one of the questions that will be raised in Parliament will be, are we here finding a way, a solution to social problems by the aging population, by the fact that people are living longer? And you'll have people who have cancer and have only been given six months, but who will also at the same time be developing dementia symptoms. And therefore, there are going to be issues. Will there be the time for those two doctors who are going to be stamping the thing, saying this is the right time? Are they going to have speak to other family members are people going to be making this decision because they think my family haven't got the money to be able to help with the care bill that's coming with looking after me and therefore I'd rather go now and save them the money in a society that's riven with social division where the gulf between rich and poor has become so much greater I think there are serious moral challenges in all of this and you could be opening the door to some very grievous that's why the safeguards are important you've also you're right to say It is the rich nations of the world. The place where it's been longest is Oregon. Oregon has rich and poor people. 
it applies to everybody. A lot of people were against it when it was introduced. I think you would find now that the medical profession, those caring professions, those who run, for example, hospitals or old people's homes would say it's been a fantastic success because it is universal, it works well, and there aren't cases of abuse. Now, all the things you say about the problems of our health service are right. None of that makes me think people shouldn't have the autonomy when they are dying to determine how they die. But I think that this this has to be really very carefully... I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. There needs to be, in our parliament, real detailed consideration. I'm very strongly in favour of doing it. I'm very strongly in favour of restricting it to people who are terminally ill. There has to be safeguards. But we need to do it because I think this is what the public wants. And the law is such a mess now. The law is cruel in the way that and it deals with Dennis and Mavis. It's incoherent. Exactly, exactly. Totally incoherent. It's an area where the law comes up against people's lived experience. We've had a rather less humorous conversation than we've had before, but it's been very useful. But I think, we've got to, I think we've got to stop now. Next week, we'll be discussing something else. Do listen in. Uh, <laughs> Helena and Nick, thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. You, thank, bye you, bye. thank you, Charlie. Bye-bye. Thank you, Charlie. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Law and Disorder with Helena Kennedy, Charlie Faulkner and me, Nicholas Mostyn. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Podder. Our theme music is by Anthony Willis. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app. We'd be delighted to know what you think of the podcast, so do please email us your thoughts on lawanddisorderfeedback at gmail.com. See you next week. <laughs>